You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Welcome back to our special series, The Bigger Picture. This week, Anastasia Kapetis speaks to Professor Mary Caldor, Director of the Conflict and Civil Society Research Unit in the LSE Department of International Development. They discuss the concept of human security and how it evolved, and consider whether the lessons being learned from recent events in Afghanistan are the right ones. Welcome, Professor Cowdor. It's really a great pleasure having you here on this ASPE special series to talk about human security and cosmopolitanism. And these are concepts that you were instrumental in building from the 80s onwards. And also we'll use this lens uh, in our discussion today to explore the war in Afghanistan and the current manifestations of authoritarianism and globalisation. So if we could start with your current thinking on human security, How's the concept of human security and cosmopolitanism evolved in practice since the 80s? And how can these ideas and practices help support security in the current historical moment? Well, you know, when I first wrote my book, New and Old Wars, I used the idea of cosmopolitan law enforcement. And that was the term I used to explain how we should address contemporary conflicts. And by cosmopolitanism, I meant a combination of human rights, but also a celebration of diversity. That's what cosmopolitanism is about. And so it's actually a very good word. And what I wanted to make the point was that in these conflict situations, the key thing to do is to establish the legitimacy of political institutions and to re-establish a rule of law. And then over the years, this sort of morphed into human security. And the reason is really that cosmopolitanism sounded a bit more, a bit intellectual. Mm-hmm. And human security was a term that was widely used. What happened in the early 2000s is that I convened a study group to think about what kind of security capabilities the European Union should have. This was the time when Javier Solana was the EU's foreign policy chief. And we came up with a lot of ideas and we've decided, and it was a study group composed of practitioners and academics. We had generals, we had former ministers of defence. And... Um, When we got to the end of it, we said, how are we going to describe it? And everybody agreed on the term human security. And of course, the term human security had been around a long time. It was introduced in 1994 in the UNDP Human Development Report. But it actually meant something rather different Mm. from what we meant. Okay. I mean, in fact, for UNDP, it was really all about development and the feeling that people will be more secure if they aren't poor and that wars are caused by lack of development. And so it was very much the idea that the money released from the arms race could be devoted to development. There was also in parallel the Canadian interest in human security, which was very much about human rights and culminated Mm -hmm. in the doctrine of responsibility to protect. 
I think the European version, which is actually quite pervasive now in Europe, was something different. It wasn't contradictory to these earlier versions of human security. But basically the idea was that human security is what we enjoy in a rights-based law-governed society. In our societies, Australia or the UK, we expect that if there's a crisis, there are emergency services, firemen, policemen, uh, health workers ready to come to our aid. And what human security is about is the idea of extending that outwards so that security capabilities are not so much about defending borders in a traditional national way. They're about contributing to the spread of the rule of law and being able to intervene in emergencies, whether these are on a multilateral basis, whether these are natural disasters or wars. And what's quite interesting at the moment, I think, is that in the um, aftermath of what happened in Afghanistan, there's actually a renewed interest in all this. I mean, a lot of European countries are keen on human security and Mm -hmm. a lot of time was spent by the European Union discussing it in different staff colleges and so on. And, you know, you have countries like Portugal and Spain, Belgium. And actually, interestingly, there's a new interest about this in France as well. And just recently, rather to my amazement, NATO established a human security unit inside the Secretary General's office. Now, the way they've defined human security is a sort of umbrella concept for protection of civilians, protection of cultural heritage, women, peace and security, Mm -hmm. gender violence, human trafficking. And I think there is still within NATO and within European countries a kind of ambiguity about the term. Is human security something you do to make NATO military operations less bad? (laughs) Or is it an alternative concept for security? And of course, I think it's an alternative way of doing security. So again, looking at Afghanistan, if concepts of human security are, are becoming entertained again, what are some of the lessons do you think the international community is learning from uh, recent events in Afghanistan? Are they the right ones or are they the wrong ones? I think they're completely the wrong ones, is my impression. Um, But I think it's really good to talk about human security because it can illustrate in greater detail what I mean by human security. I think by the wrong lessons that have been learned are that countries shouldn't do nation building and should focus on counter-terror. Mm-hmm. And I think it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> I mean, I think what happened in Afghanistan was that nation building efforts were perpetually undermined by the counter-terror efforts. The main objective in Afghanistan was not the security of Afghans, but counter-terror. It was the security of Americans and British, not the security of Afghans. And I can remember having these arguments with people 
you know, saying, actually, I think the British people are nice enough to understand if you said it was about the security of Afghans rather than making us, or as well as making our streets safe. But the key point is the counter-terror effort in Afghanistan, first of all, it provoked resistance. Actually, you know, in 2001, the Taliban were defeated. They had wanted to be included in Bonn. They wanted to surrender. But the Americans wanted to go on chasing them. And they allied with their former allies from the anti-Soviet times, the Mujahideen, now kind of commanders or warlords, in the fight against terror. And that actually provoked the Taliban. In recent years, NATO have become incredibly conscious of the need to minimize civilian casualties. And there's been a huge fall in civilian casualties associated with NATO attacks. But what Afghans say is what you don't understand is it doesn't make much difference to us whether NATO minimizes civilian casualties, because each time they attack the Taliban, the Taliban counterattacks and they kill civilians. So I think that was one problem. But the related problem was that because they allied with the warlords, these were incredibly corrupt people who were acting in very predatory ways against their own citizens. And because there was this alliance, it was never possible to do anything about corruption. Justice was never taken seriously. And these guys were part of the government. So the government lacked legitimacy. And that lack of legitimacy fueled the Taliban insurgency. So what would it have meant to have a human security strategy? It would have meant that first and foremost, the aim was to provide security for Afghans. And that meant that the security of Afghans, the protection of Afghans came before defeating an enemy. Now, of course, the military would say, but we have to defeat the enemy to make Afghans safe. But actually, that's not the case in contemporary wars. It just produces counterattacks. And I always give the example, actually, of how the British dealt with Northern Ireland. Most of the casualties took place in the first four years of the war, 68 to 72. And in that period, the British attacked the IRA and this produced the militarization of the IRA. And after 72, there was a kind of realization that you couldn't bomb Belfast. These were our own citizens. You had to do it much more by policing methods. And although lots of horrible things happened, the level of violence in Northern Ireland was a lot lower than in other places. And eventually we got the Good Friday Agreement. So that sort of was an example of human security. I think another very good example has been the anti-piracy mission in the Gulf, where what the mission was doing was not killing pirates, but arresting them. Mm -hmm. That's a huge difference. And at the same time, they were handing out fishing licenses to people on the Somali 
coast. So, you know, what I would learn from Afghanistan is that the huge mistake was the emphasis on counter-terror. And what is really alarming is that this war against this uh, this long-distance campaign of assassination using drones is now happening all over the world. And actually, ISIS and al-Qaeda are getting stronger. It doesn't work. And yet, for some mad reason, the conclusion drawn <laughs> is that that's what we ought to be doing. Can I just briefly ask, what about the issue of uh, private uh, economic actors, shall we say, in, co in conflicts like Afghanistan? Um, a major congressional review into the conflict around 2014 found that these and multinational logistics companies were really the only winners in the Afghanistan conflict. They were the ones that made profits, made bank. Is this one of the reasons uh, why the war went in the way it did? Um, and does it relate to some of your early ideas about war being, you know, an economic enterprise and driven by some of these factors rather than security factors? Well, I think that's absolutely right. We think of war as a deep-rooted political contest between two sides. But actually, the wars that we witness at the moment are very different. They're wars in which the aim isn't so much to win as to use violence for economic or political ends. And I think that's been happening for a long time. That's why they're forever wars, because nobody has an interest in ending them, because they can make money out of them and they can make money in all kinds of ways by setting up checkpoints, kidnapping, hostage-taking, looting, taxing humanitarian aid or smuggling drug smuggling, as in Afghanistan, yes. or being paid by the Americans to kill terrorists. I mean, there was a case in Iraq yes. where tribesmen put holes into the oil wells so they'd be paid to protect the oil pipelines. <laughs> and of course, it's also true politically that it's quite hard to mobilise people around extremist ideologies except in conditions of fear. Mm. And so it also helps. And also, you know, if you think you're going to be killed because of your ethnic identity, then that identity becomes very important. I'm also thinking here of in the Trump years, people like Eric Prince, um, a notorious mercenary uh, who was close to Trump's inner circle, put forward some what he thought and the administration thought was serious ideas about privatising these wars. Is that a trend, do you think, and, uh, well, an idea that will, that will be, still be popular in, in the years ahead? Well, I think what is the case is that nowadays we don't dare risk our regular forces on the ground. And so we pay others, whether they're private security contractors or, say, in the case of Iraq and Syria, they were Kurdish and Shia militias. And so I think that there's no question that the military machine has become increasingly privatised, and that makes it more and more difficult to control. I've just read a very good book about all this, you know, Eisenhower talked in the 1950s about the military-industrial complex, mm. but now it's become much more complex. It involves these private security contractors. It involves intelligence agencies. I mean, it's extraordinary to think that the drone campaign is often organised by private security contractors. 
It is incredible, and including things like political warfare, um, interference in elections or manipulation of elections. Exactly, exactly. That's all part of the forever wars, isn't it? You said just before that um, uh, despite efforts in Afghanistan, uh, those terrorist actors are are gathering strength and regrouping. Mm. Are there other non-Islamic terrorist threats, such as the white supremacist threat uh, in the US and other developed nations, is, is that becoming more of a problem? And would a human security approach work here as well? Yes, I think it is becoming more of a problem, but the own definitely becoming more of a problem. And there are these new, really quite frightening networks that appear on the internet. Uh, so I think it is right-wing white supremacists as well as extremist Islamists. I think what a human security approach would mean is first that you deal with this through policing and intelligence and not through military means. But secondly, you really deal with the underlying issues. And that's where the original UNDP um, definition comes in, because it is about people being very insecure in material ways as well as physical ways. And also, I did a little study at LSE with some PhD students of the Brexit voting areas in Britain. And I think a key issue was the feeling that their voices are not heard, that our representative democracy doesn't really enable people to get their voices heard. So we also need to renew democracy. But I think if we're thinking about the rise of right-wing authoritarianism as well as these new extremist groups, I think several factors are very important. I mean, I think one has been the increase in what I would call crony capitalism. You know, along with neoliberalism came the contracting out of state functions and so many big capitalists are now dependent on state contracts so they fund their politicians i find that in all the war zones that i study Mm. you know syria is a great example of that where you had a group of crony capitalists but it's actually happening in the west too it's happening in britain it's happening in the u.s and that is is fueling a sort of systemic type of corruption that's very difficult to deal with then of course you also have extreme growing inequalities. And then finally, there is this issue that actually our democracies don't function very well any longer. And they don't function very well any longer, I think, for two reasons. One is that actually we organise democracy on a national basis when we live in a globalised, interconnected world. So as we're discovering, discovering in Britain after Brexit, actually we're linked into global regulations that we can't escape from. Mm. And there's actually rather little, you know, this whole slogan of the Brexiteers take back control. Actually, you can only take back control if you have a little bit of more control at European and global levels. We've actually lost control. So one of the issues is that, you know, if if the decisions that affect your life are taken in the headquarters of a multinational or on the laptop of a financial speculator, 
then however perfect your democracy at national level, you can't really influence what's happening. So that's part of the story. But I also think the other part of the story is that nation states themselves have become rigidified and bureaucratized, and it's really hard to do things at a national level. So, you know, I think if we're going to renew democracy, and that also means bringing policy back in tune with the challenges of our time, we do need to be both more global and more local. I just want to finish um, our conversation today with um, looking at your ideas about global security cultures, which just for listeners, uh, new wars, geopolitics, liberal peace and war on terror were the categories in your work. How does a a kind of a globalised, interconnected authoritarianism fit here? Well, let me just start by explaining what I mean by a security culture which is that, you know, it's partly trying to explain why there are so many irrationalities in security policies. (laughs) You know, why (laughs) do we conclude that the war on terror is the best way to go when we know the war on terror isn't working? Why do we have a new strategic alliance between you in Australia and us in Britain when we know that mainly what it's going to do is to provoke China and um, annoy our European allies. (laughs) So why do we do all that? And I think the answer is that, I mean, it's very simple to say their economic interests like the military industrial complex, but I think it's also that ways of doing security get routinized and get normalized and people's careers depend on them and bureaucracies depend on them Mm. and so by geopolitics I mean classic national security the sort of dominant security that we have which is everybody kind of assumes that that's built into the history of the nation state having an army having a defense industry and it's really difficult to shift But actually, in recent years, we've had, on the one hand, you've had new types of conflict with non-state actors, and they get built into a kind of culture. They are a kind of culture in which people are making money. And we've also had a big expansion of UN operations, and that's what I mean by the liberal peace And I think that unless we can shift these security cultures, I mean, in a way, authoritarianism, most nation states are in an impossible situation. Um, Politicians aren't in a position to offer to solve the problems of ordinary people because they're so stuck in their security Mm. cultures. And so I think there is a link between authoritarianism and security cultures. And I think if we were to be able to shift to human security, if we could find openings in, say, the liberal peace that could make a shift in that direction, then I think that would be extremely important to increase the legitimacy of governments and to make, a, and to make it more possible to make the kind of changes that I've been talking about. What do you make of the Biden's administration efforts to do something like that, to have an agenda for um, the promotion of global democracy, to link non-traditional security challenges like climate change to a globalised democracy? Well, it's kind of odd that they say that, along with the 
continuing war on terror and along with this obsession with China. I mean, not that I don't think China's very dangerous, I do, but it's precisely because I think China's very dangerous that I think military competition is the wrong approach. Mm. And that actually we need to sort of bind China into the international system so as to make Chinese aggression and Chinese human rights violations less likely. That's the only way I can think of dealing with the dangers of China. And the same with terrorists. You know, if we don't want the expansion of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, we have to have a different approach because actually so far the war on terror has made it worse. So there's something very odd about talking about global democracy promotion when at the same time you're acting in these old-fashioned ways that actually sort of promote and prop up authoritarianism. Is it because uh, nations like the US, uh, their foreign policy communities and security policy communities are so siloed, or it's just that ideas about human security have not yet travelled really into the mainstream of geopolitical security cultures, for example? Well, I think they're traveling into the mainstream of European security thinking, which is, and in a way, I think the best hope for countering authoritarianism would be a more autonomous European Union. I mean, what was very depressing about the whole Afghan story was that all the Europeans were against the American troop withdrawal and yet they went along with it. So they don't act in Mm. autonomous ways. But I think what you see with Biden is that even though he was supposed to be an alternative to Trump, in foreign policy, he's carrying on Trump's policies. So it was Trump who negotiated with the Taliban and left excluded the government and civil society. It was Trump who wanted to withdraw troops and was quite ready for the Taliban to take over. And similarly, I think the basis for ANCUS was established during the Trump years. So Mm -hmm. there's something, you know, I, I think the Americans need to start thinking very, very hard about their own democracy. Do you think there is a way forward there Um, on the, one hand, there's a huge amount of democratic organising going on in the United States. On the other hand, there's a huge amount of, of authoritarian organising, especially in terms of voter suppression, legislation, uh, and, of course, the very strange new laws in Texas um, that essentially allow private militias to enforce religious laws. I agree. I think I saw a very funny cartoon of Texan women grabbing onto an aeroplane that was leaving Texas. I I agree, there are these two different tendencies in America, and I think a lot's going to depend on on Biden's recovery plan. The recovery plan is really ambitious and will, if it gets through Congress, uh, will dramatically change people's lives. And I think that will start to lead to changes. It will give the democratic movements much more momentum but it's on a knife edge just as we speak yes in 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 the senate yeah one more question and this is really just to bring in climate change to some of the themes that we've been discussing here how does increasingly worsening climate change affect uh, 
some of these problems of metastasizing terrorist movements, of um, globalised authoritarianism. Of course, this is going to, is, the answer would be incredibly complex, but what do you, what's your initial gut feeling about how this pl- plays out over the next decade? Well, I, I think we should bring in climate change, but also pandemics and COVID. Mm-hmm. And it makes the case that we are, do live in a globalised world, and that's why we need to move from our national security silos to a human security approach. And as I see it, human security is not simply about providing emergency services in conflict. It's about providing emergency services in natural disasters or providing emergency services to help countries with inadequate healthcare systems. And, you know, what I find very disturbing is that there isn't sufficient understanding in the West, or and I include Australia in that, that actually we can't solve any of these problems without solving them globally. And COVID is a good example of this. I mean, the conflicts that I study are really transmission belts for COVID. They have inadequate healthcare systems. They have intergenerational living. They have refugee camps and detention camps where COVID spreads like wildfire. And unless you can start addressing conflicts, you're never going to be able to control COVID. The chances of a new vaccine-resistant variant developing in conflict areas is quite high. You know, I was very struck that polio was eliminated, well, WHO claimed to have eliminated polio in 2005, but it's actually reappeared in Afghanistan and the Congo. And you can make the same argument about climate change. So all these global crises, the crisis of poverty, the crisis of migration, the crisis of climate change, the crisis of COVID, are all deeply interconnected and the thing about human security is it's, it's a security approach that is about security from all these different types of crises. And it's about security for all human beings and not just Europeans and Australians and Americans. Finally, if states with capability are stuck in their you know, uh, own security cultures and are, are unable to really act meaningfully because they haven't developed these the habits the security habits of a human security approach. What happens in that vacuum? And we see you know, a lot of non-state actors, NGOs, citizen groups uh, organising on things like climate change um, internationally, organising on things like um, democracy promotion. Is that enough or do well, we need a mixture of both states and those groups? Well, we definitely need pressure from below to keep going and to keep going across borders. My worry is that all the worst things that one can imagine happening keep happening. I mean, 10 years ago, we would have been amazed to know we were in the situation we are today. And these are forever wars. And my fear is that many of the ingredients that I see in the Balkans, in the Middle East and Africa, 
this combination of crony capitalism and ethnic sectarianism, and by the way, misogyny, which is a hugely important aspect of the whole thing. You see them in America, you see them in Britain. And so, you know, we're becoming engulfed, if you like, in a global forever. And that's the sort of dire prediction for the future. Mm. And the question is, is the younger generation, I mean, all these wonderful young people who've been involved in climate change action and all of that kind of thing, and the transnational movements, you know, are they going to somehow have an impact so that we change direction and really address these issues? Well, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you again so much for coming and talking to us about what really are the, you know, the most difficult and important issues of the day. And we hope to, in the future, have you, have you on again to talk about the developments in these issues too. Okay, thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode next week.